love about the Bible is how God doesn't hold back. There's no sugarcoating, there's no spin, there's no image management. No one's protected. Uh, when we meet someone in the Bible, we see them exactly as they are, warts and all. And I love the thought uh, I've shared before from a preacher that I used to listen to quite a bit. His name was uh, Stanley Ship. And he told us there are no such thing as Bible characters. These people we read about in the Bible are just like you and me. They just happen to be standing around when the Bible got wrote, is the way he would put it. That's been a helpful insight to me over the years. I can't find a person whose life is exposed in the Bible who had it together all the time. Most everyone seemed to go rogue at some point. Nearly everyone lost their way, and just like, just like we do. We wake up one morning and we realize the place we are isn't where we want to be. It isn't where we plan to be, but it is where we are. And this place, in this place we find ourselves, um, it brings on a lot of emotions, sometimes disappointment, sometimes despondency, sometimes discouragement. And if you're a student of the Bible, you know these kind of feelings aren't uncommon to read about in the people and the stories that God has chosen for us to, to hear, for him to share. Moses became so despondent, despondent, he once asked God to take his life. We looked at Jonah back in May, and after that great revival in Nineveh, he wanted to end his life. The Apostle Paul tells us one time that he despaired even of life at this certain season in his ministry. And the man of God we're going to look at today, Elijah, God's prophet, was at one time buried by discouragement and despair, similar to some of these other folks. So this fo the focus today is this. What does God have to say to us when we've lost our way? What does God have to say to us when we find ourselves in a cave, unable to move, and content to hide out? What does God have to say to us when we wonder if life is worth it? And I want to say this as sensitively as I can from the start. I have a great respect for those of you who work in the mental health field. And this morning, I certainly don't want to oversimplify mental health challenges some may be experiencing simply by saying, trust God and everything will work out. I know it's not that easy. But I do want to share with you Elijah's story so you can see how God responds to him in his darkest days. And maybe in all of this, someone listening will find a morsel of truth which brings just a sliver of hope into their world. So the part of Elijah's life I'd like to spotlight occurs primarily in 1 Kings 19, but before we go there, let's, let's spend a little time setting the stage. At this point in Elijah's life, the nation of Israel has become very cozy with the gods of their neighbors, specifically uh, Baal and Asherah. And this disloyalty was offensive to the Lord. The very first commandment God hands down to Moses is crystal clear. You remember it. Do not have what? Do not have any other gods before me. The Lord sent his prophet Elijah to Ahab, the king of Israel, to announce that a drought was coming as punishment for the sin of breaking this first commandment. And Elijah did as God asks. He makes an announcement in Ahab's palace, and then the Lord tells Elijah to go hide out in the desert for a while. And while all alone, the Lord provides food and water for Elijah. After some time passes, the water dries up because of the drought, so God has Elijah moved to a different location, and he moves in with a widow and her son uh, who are very poor. And while in her home, this lady's flour and oil containers never run empty, miraculously. And also while there, Elijah gets to be part of the very first recorded resurrection. God uses him to bring this lady's son back to life, you know, another miracle. 
So Elijah has been in discipleship training out of sight while Israel struggles through a drought and a famine. And he has been learning how to trust the Lord completely for food, for water, uh, for shelter. And he sees how powerful God truly is. And he feels protection every day because Ahab, the king, has put a, a contract out on his head. So in chapter 18 of verse 1 of 1 Kings, we read this, after a long time, in the third year, that's in the third year since the drought began, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So after three long years, the Lord sends Elijah back to the king, uh, that's the one who wanted his head, the one whom he blames for the drought and the famine. And I would say the signature event of Elijah's life happens next at the scene in Mount Carmel. A showdown is brewing, a showdown between the prophets of Baal and the lone prophet of God. Numerically, it was 850 of them to one, Elijah. And it's a great story in 1 Kings 18. It's very dramatic. And in the end, God and Elijah rule the day, and all 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah are killed. And the people of Israel bow down to worship the Lord, and they pledge their allegiance to him once again, as they've done so many times before. And after the showdown, Elijah prays for rain, and this deluge soon follows. So at this point in Elijah's story, you could say Elijah's living the dream. The next segment of Elijah's life involves four personalities. We have King Ahab, his wife, Queen Jezebel, Elijah, and the Lord. In verse 1 of chapter 19, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. I get the idea Ahab didn't have a strong personality, or maybe he wasn't really even a strong person. After Baal's prophets were wiped out, he returns to the palace, and he seems to whine to his wife Jezebel, and this is when she takes over. And unfortunately, that's not a good thing because she is not a nice person. In verse 2, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. If by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them, like one of the prophets who's dead now. So Jezebel is quick to take matters into her own hands, and she employs intimidation and threats to attack Elijah. And the truth is, I mean, Jezebel is a brutal woman. That's why none of you have named your daughters Jezebel. It's right up there with Judas. I mean, think about this guy she's threatening. He's been in God's witness protection program. I mean, nobody's been able to find him for three years. He's won this smackdown at Mount Carmel against 850 false prophets. He called down fire from heaven, and when he prays, the drought ends. Surely a guy with this kind of history with the Lord would not be shaken by the threats of a vindictive and insecure woman. But you know, Elijah's human, like us, and God lets us see his story even the unflattering chapters. And many of us will connect with Elijah's reaction. In verse 3 of 1 Kings 19, we read these words. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Simple enough. I mean, all of us have fled out of fear at some point in our lives. Uh, Bees chasing us. Dogs chasing us. Maybe an unwanted suitor chasing you. Age chasing us. But Elijah running because of fear doesn't make a lot of sense. He's a prophet. In fact, he's a rock star among the prophets. He can pray for rain to stop, and it stops. And then he prays again, and it rains. And that's, that's pretty intense. So Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, 
while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. So here, in my mind, I see Elijah running kind of to the edge of the territory that people go to, and then he goes just a little further for good measure. And here's a question for us to think about. Why, why did Elijah run? You know, and I, I suspect it's probably for the same reasons you and, you and I run. Elijah wasn't thinking clearly. It's one of the reasons he ran. He, he didn't think clearly about the source of this threat. It's, it's not like this threat came from a divine source. It came from an unbelieving, conniving, power-hungry, Baal-worshipping human. But we get that, don't we? We catch heat from someone who doesn't care about us, someone who doesn't really know us. Someone ignores us or doesn't give us the attention we think they should. Someone doesn't respond kindly to us, and soon we're headed down this spiral of doom. So we get that. Elijah wasn't thinking clearly. He also made a decision to travel alone. There's this little um, kind of subtle statement in verse 3 that he left his servant um, he left his servant there, kind of at the edge of the territory, and, as, and he headed on into the desert. It's a whole lot easier to be discouraged if you're alone. This is, this is definitely a challenge when we're in a pit of despair because usually we don't feel like having anyone else around, yet that's exactly when we benefit the most by having a friend at our side. A juniper tree in the wilderness, a broom tree, may provide respite for only one. There's just a little shade beneath its branches. And we all know this, but it's good to note that the Lord has a strong track record of using people to encourage the discouraged. So when we shut people out, we may be choosing to limit the Lord's actions on our behalf. Another reason Elijah's on the run with all he's been through, he's exhausted physically, mentally. I mean, he's been a man that's been wanted for a few years now. He's been laying low in tucked away places And then he experiences this overwhelming showdown, smackdown, whatever you want to call it, this overwhelming victory at Mount Carmel, uh, followed by having a deal with this annoying Jezebel lady. Elijah is, he's just about to be overcooked. There's only so much one guy can handle, so he runs. And he runs to a quagmire of self-pity. Listen to this description of self-pity I I read as thinking about this sermon. Self-pity is a pathetic emotion. It will lie to you. It will exaggerate, it will drive you to tears, it will cultivate a victim mentality in your head, and in the worst case scenario, it can bring you to the point of wishing to die, which is exactly where Elijah was. Elijah says to the Lord, I've had enough. Take, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. First of all, who said he had to be better than his ancestors? Uh, he, he, he seemed to be telling himself that. We, we make a way for self-pity to move in when we set up unattainable and unrealistic standards, and then we don't live up to those standards, and you know, then we go off into this tailspin. Another thought is that it could be that Elijah isn't necessarily running for his life. He may be instead running from his life. He's had a very challenging three years. It's, it's been long. And not only has he lived through a drought and a famine, he's also lived through a drought of companionship and a famine of friendship. And on top of that, his picture's on the most wanted posters all across the land. His, his life is hard. 
And the pressure of success can be extremely draining. To experience success like he did at Mount Carmel and then to realize this ordeal ain't over yet, that's just too much for him to handle. Elijah should know. In fact, he does know. Jezebel doesn't have the power to call on God's to end his life. Perhaps Elijah's greatest fear at this point isn't dying. His greatest fear is living and having to fight another agonizing battle. One author calls this the the Jezebel effect. And it occurs when the noise of threats and fear and anxiety drowns out the voice of God and the history you have with him. The Jezebel effect robs you of the time and space that is meant to be reserved for confidence in God. What you get are exaggerated interpretations of negative outcomes of battles you haven't even fought yet. So giving in to the Jezebel effect, giving in to fear's voice will derail us and we'll miss the adventure. We'll miss the storyline God has in store for us. Listen to the voice of fear long enough and you'll be drawn away from having the capacity to hear God's voice of reassurance at all. Elijah definitely has listened to these voices and he's lost his way. So what does God do with him? What does he do when we're overwhelmed with discouragement? What does he do when we're flooded with despondency? What does he do when we're struggling with loneliness? What does he do when, we wonder, when we're wondering if this life, where this life is taking us? So verse 5, 1 Kings 19, Elijah laid down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again, and the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So one thing we see is this. The Lord allowed Elijah a little time to rest. We don't read about any lecture or blaming. There's no accusations or shame. There's no message to suck it up and move on. Instead, he's given time to catch his breath. He's given time to let his soul catch up to the moment. And then the Lord catered a meal. Do you see this is the first serving of angel food cake, uh, (laughs) along with some refreshing water. Check this out. Um, the, The chairman of Google made a claim that in a single day, modern society generates more information than all civilization have has created before 2003. I don't know how you come up with a statement like that, but he, he made that statement. And he reported this fact to make the point that this flood of information, this flood of noise, doesn't necessarily mean more truth. One aspect of our battle is that when we've lost our way, when discouragement and despair are winning the day, it's overtaking our hearts, the voice of God and the message he speaks must become clearer than the incessant noise around us. This noise clamors for attention and introduces fear to our minds and depletes our store of courage. God is always present. God is always signaling, but we must choose to look his way. We must choose to eat what he lays by our head. We need to be in touch with the faith we've been given, claim the promises made, trust in the one who knows us best. But that's our choice to make. He will not stuff food in our mouths, whether we like it or not. So in verse 19, uh, we see that Elijah went into a cave and he spent the night. That's the next place we find Elijah, from the tree to the cave at night in the dark. And I love to see the way the Lord gently communicates with Elijah. 
he asks him this question. He says, what are you doing here? And that's a good question for a person who's lost their way. What are, you, what are you doing here? That's a good question for someone who's sitting in a spot where they never imagined sitting. It's a question for the lonely, for the discouraged. What, what are you doing here? It's a good question for someone who's taken up residence in a cave, a cave of self-pity, perhaps, or a cave of despair, or a cave of fear. In the cave, it's hard to hear God's voice. The reception is terrible in a cave. So God invites Elijah to meet him on the mountain where nothing can obstruct his signal. The enemy cannot do a single thing to diminish the Lord's promises. But he can lure us into places where our perspective of his promise is diminished and clouded. When you've lost your way, it's so easy to continue down a lonely road believing friends don't understand you and God has abandoned you. And that's why getting out of the cave is so vitally important. Elijah responds to God with a bit of self-pity. He says to God, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I mean, that's the chorus in the lie Elijah is believing. And it plays over and over and over in his head. I'm the only one who cares. I'm the only one fighting for what's right. I'm the only voice left. It's me against what? The world. That's right. Again, check out God's response because he listens and offers no accusations. He lays down no shame. Instead, he says, let's get you out of this dark cave. You need to see a little light. Verse 11, the Lord said, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. I get that. I mean, we, we tend to expect God to show up in some substantial way sometimes, some sensational way. But notice this. When Elijah is at the bottom, sensation is not God's style with him. Look at what the Lord chooses instead. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? God intentionally chooses to show up in a whisper, a gentle whisper. Your your version may say a still, small voice. I like this line, a silence which can be heard. Why, Why did God choose a whisper? Here's one idea. He whispers because he's close. He whispers because he's near. If he's not close, what good would a whisper do? God can whisper because he's right there, nudged right up against his prophet. The enemy has to shout his threats because all he has to offer is distractions and lies. Jezebel shouts threats because she has no other weapons. God whispers because he has no need to shout. The greatest teacher once said, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There's no need to shout. A whisper will do just fine. Our minds can be trained by God to be attuned to his still, small, gentle voice. Listen to these words um, from Stephen Furtick about this topic. The enemy's threats are embedded in lies. God's whispers are rooted in truth. The enemy's threats are designed to paralyze. God's whispers are empowered to mobilize. The enemy's threats condemn vaguely. 
God's whispers instruct specifically. The enemy's threats con- conspire to diminish hope. God's whispers empower change. The enemy's threats are aimed to take you out. God's whispers speak a better word to keep you in and moving forward. God whispers because he's near. And he whispers truth. The true north, we need to find our way again. Do you see what the Lord's doing with Elijah? He's trying to do with his life. He's, he's drawing him out of the cave. He's drawing him out of the cave. When we have lost our way, finding true north again is paramount. And you aren't likely to do that from inside a cave. And once out, the Lord asks him again, What are you doing here, Elijah? You look like you've lost your way. Verse 15, now the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazalel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazalel. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I will reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Remember when Elijah said uh, he thought he was the only one left? (laughs) That's not true, is it? God still has work for Elijah. Elijah's life has a purpose which matters. And so first we see the Lord gives space for Elijah to rest, to catch his breath. And then he provides some clear direction. And next we see the Lord provide Elijah with a close friend. Verse 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. And Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Uh, Elisha left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come with you. Elijah said, go back. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back, and he took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. And he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. So don't miss that in verse 19. Uh, Thanks to the sensitive response to Elijah's despair and encouragement, Elijah chooses to leave the cave. We read that Elijah went from there. Where where was he? He was in the cave. So he, he went from the cave. He emerged from the darkness. And he went and he found Elisha. And look what Elisha did. He became his attendant. Other versions say he ministered to him. He encouraged him. He listened to him. He served him. He loved him. He walked alongside him. He was his friend. God has not designed us to live like hermits in a cave. He designed us to live in community, which is what the church offers. Barrett's been sharing this important message in his Ephesians sermons. Uh, we, we can't do this alone. God never intended for us to travel solo. Why do you think we're having this lunch together today, even in these kind of conditions? We need to be together. 2020 was definitely the year of the introvert. But it's time for introverts to unite. We will miss out on so much if we stay stoops, uh, cooped up in the, in the caves. So the question for you is this. What does God want to whisper to you right now? What truth have you been missing uh, while you've been tucked out in the cave, maybe? Satan will continue to shout. Jezebel's volume is compensating for the emptiness of her message. One word from God. One word whispered. From the living God who is near you will empower you with all the truth you need. His still, small voice will illuminate true north again for you, lighting the way home. So what do you do when you've lost your way? 
What do you do when despair is your closest companion? What do you do when discouragement is your ever-present running mate? Here's what we learned from Elijah's experience with the Lord. You get up, you step out of the cave, you come into the light, and you listen. Because God is near, and he has a word for you in this bleak moment, in this dark night of your soul. Don't let a battle you're afraid to fight keep you from a victory that's already won. That's the invitation this morning. Don't let a battle you're afraid to fight keep you from a victory you've already won. Let's stand together and sing. Turn.